On this episode of the Pats Podcast, we look back on some of the guests that we had on the show this year. Stick around. Let's be better athletic trainers. Before we begin this episode, I'd like to thank our sponsor, Sway Medical, for their continued support of athletic trainers in the state of Pennsylvania and Pats. Check them out at www.swaymedical.com. So our first clip is from episode 20, where Mercedes talks about the damage microaggressions can do. Let's listen in. Microaggressions, yeah. uh, to be honest. And I don't, I don't think we can focus on just one or a few, um, but a lot of people don't know that microaggressions are a thing. Um, one, or not one, but a few microaggressions that speak out to me. Um, if I'm meeting someone and usually a white person and they're, oh, you speak so well. Or, you know, talking about President Barack Obama, he speaks so well. Well, he's an educated man. I would hope that he speaks well. And it's just that connotation of you're black, maybe you're not educated. And I don't want to have to explain myself every time that, you know, I went to high school, I have a bachelor's, a master's, a doctorate. I don't have to explain myself to you. I can speak well. Um, also, oh, you're black, but you're not black, black. Like, uh, I'm not sure what that means. What does that mean? <laughs> <laughs> and it's, or it's like, you're not ghetto. So it's just, well, okay. But most people don't know. I grew up in the inner city in Philadelphia. So I, I don't know. But it's just, well, what's black, black? But okay. It is, you can also have a white person that maybe they look white, but they are biracial and you say oh well what are you that's one is rude and it's also a microaggression and you just have this disbelief that someone with blonde hair blue eyes is not full white and it's i think we just have to think about what we say (laughs) it's a lot of think before you speak and we're very as a whole we're just we're going to say what's on our mind. And I respect it. I appreciate it. But you have to think first, just like, how can this be taken? Or, you know, talking about someone's hair, like, oh, your hair is long, it's straight. Like, how is it supposed to be? Like, <laughs> what is straighteners, acceptable? They make straighteners. Right. The hairstyle, yeah. <laughs> it's, there's many things that go on. And actually, in my dissertation research one of my participants was talking about her experience and she was saying she's the only uh black student athlete on her team and at one point she was upset about something and since then she's just been deemed you know the angry black woman and it's she was upset but somebody that's not black could have that same experience and there is more accepted versus just asking her what are you upset about and you know how can we fix the problem so it's making sure that you're not just throwing these things onto people and it, it you can have white microaggressions as well granted I, I don't know all of them but those are the the common ones that are heard and seen or whatever in episode 12 we talk with the rest of the Diversity and Inclusivity Committee about ways to create an open and accepting atmosphere in our athletic training rooms. Let's listen in. 
Today, we are again joined by the Diversity and Inclusivity Committee to discuss the needs of our LGBTQ athletes and how we can make sure that we maintain a supportive and comfortable environment for all of our athletes and patients. Also on the show today, we are joined by Em, who is an athletic trainer at Lake Erie College. Uh, she, um, Em is a graduate of Slippery Rock University, and I believe, Bonnie, you're familiar with Em. I am. Emily is here to uh, sort of as my special guest um, to help us with uh, some of the research that she's done uh, with the transgender community. That's awesome. So um, it's great that you just brought up our transgender community and our transgender uh, patients. Um, let's discuss some of the uh, terminology and definitions with the LT. LGBTQ plus community. It, it's, uh, I, I'm bummed I kind of stumbled on it, but I think it brings up the point of like, who, what community are we talking about when we talk about this? Right, so, you know, the, the terminology gets very diff difficult to, to, um, to go through. And a lot of people don't understand what those letters mean. Uh, and the letters for a while were getting longer and longer. Um, you know, sometimes we joke and call it alphabet soup. Um, and uh, you'll hear people say the LGBT LMNOP and you know, you can kind of joke about it, but you're also talking about a group of people. So, um, you know, for a while it kind of expanded to LGBTQQIAA and it was just going on and on and on. So what, what we've kind of started to work towards <laughs> was putting the plus sign on the end to represent all the groups that that we're trying to be inclusive of because that's you know what we're trying to do is to be inclusive so obviously the l is for lesbian g is for gay b is for bisexual t is for transgender q is for queer and questioning and then we've got the plus sign to kind of represent all of the other um, the groups that kind of fall under this uh, umbrella of the the gay or queer community um, the, one of the groups that has, um, that's not really represented on there anymore is the A and that's our allies. Um, you know, uh, we want to recognize our allies as well. So we do have our allies out there as well. You know, sort of an interesting term on there though, representing the, the Q is queer. And I, you know, I want to make sure that I address that particular term. You know, my generation of LGBTQ people, um, queer was a real derogatory term and um, it, you know even to this day you know people from my generation get really uncomfortable with the term queer but the younger generation really embraces the term queer so um, you know it's one of those words that you have to kind of still be a little bit careful of um, in terms of who you use it with and, and for but um, you know so that's uh, one of the the Q terms. Yeah, okay. um, if I can chime in a little bit and uh, speak Please. to that. Um, yeah, like Bonnie said, uh, the term queer is one that you'll see a lot more often nowadays, um, especially with younger generations. Um, I think part of that is because, uh, like she said, it was, it is a slur and was used as a slur and a derogatory term for a very long time. And that's not to say that it isn't anymore. There are definitely still places where that is used very much as a derogatory term. And that's also not to say that every person in a younger generation or in my generation is um, 
is cool with being called that either. So um, it kind of comes back to the thing of like using the terms that other people will use for themselves, because then on the flip side, a lot more people do use the term queer nowadays because of sort of how language has changed and how some people have sort of reclaimed that term as a source of, you know, confidence and pride for them. And a lot of people also find that term to be a little bit more or a little bit less restrictive in terms of, you know, because um, more and more people are, are coming to see gender and sexuality as more fluid or more expansive or more than just, you know, two or three options. And so some people will feel like that is a more affirming term to them because it's, it's a little bit less specific, but it still gets across that their sexuality is, or gender is not heterosexual or cisgender. And so um, it just kind of goes back to that thing of we add the plus sign now because terms do change so rapidly and so much that, you know, there needs to be a way to show that we include all of those terms and we include all of the people that are part of this community, um, whether or not necessarily their, you know, their one specific word is in that acronym. Episode 13 was all about telehealth with Dr. Winkleman. So now how did you get in with telemedicine? Sounds like this would be a good doctoral thesis. Um, so it was actually during my, uh, my master's uh, program. So during that program, uh, we're located in Terre Haute, Indiana, where Indiana State's at. Our team physicians were located in Indianapolis, uh, which is an hour and a half drive. And unfortunately, the graduate assistants at that time were usually responsible for making that commute with the, with the patients. And so uh, it was an hour and a half there, an hour and a half back. And what it turned into was maybe a five-minute appointment for sometimes just to do a quick check-in, range of motion, uh, wound checks after surgery. But we literally spent three hours driving in a car for a five-minute appointment. And I started thinking about that my first year. Like, there's got to be a better way to do this than sitting in a car all day because I missed three hours of either patient care or class, whatever it may have been, the same for the patient. Um, and it didn't really click until my second year. Uh, we had, I had two specific patients. So the first one had a Liz Franck injury and required surgery. Uh, everything went well. Uh, he got home though, and his parents were here, uh, helping take care of him after surgery and they couldn't figure out how to hook up their cryo cuff and they FaceTimed me and I helped him set it all up. And I was like, Oh, that was easy. Didn't have to drive over there. Didn't have to like figure out how to talk them through it on the phone, but we just FaceTimed and got it all figured out. And then the second one was a patient that had athletic pubalgia surgery in St. Louis. Um, now, St. Louis is about two and a half, three hours from Indiana State. And we had to go six different times for that, that patient to go through pre-op, uh, the actual surgery, and then wound checks and return to play and all these appointments that was just a really, really long drive back and forth for a quick wound check. And I was like, all right, seriously, there's got to be a better way to do this. And that's really after I finished my master's that... I started to explore telemedicine more and I went through a telehealth facilitator program uh, that's accredited through the American Telemedicine Association and got uh, certified as a telehealth facilitator um, and started doing that in in my research and teaching. Zach, that's awesome. Um, You know, it's funny you say that. I I just recently, there's a school down the road, Messiah College, that um, they kind of do a similar thing where, you know, instead of bringing the doctor to them all the time, 
they decided that the telemedicine was the, was the route to go. And I thought that was, that was brilliant. So I love, I love the, the thought process there and, and the unique um, way to, to solve that problem. So uh, kudos to you. Um, so let's, let's jump into it though. I, I, I love this. I love that you, the, you're, you're into the telemedicine. Um, it sounds like you, you've, you're well-versed in it. So I, I appreciate you being on the show. Uh, before we, we dive into like the nitty gritty and, and really get into the details of how to do this, uh, can, can you just talk a little bit about the legality of it? Um, you know, what, what has to be in an SOP? You know, I know when I was doing a little bit of research for, for myself here, um, you know, being virtual, um, but not having any students on campus, you know, we're looking into, you know, like each state has a different, you know, policy on this or, or, or different, um, you know, just what, what your, um, the, the legal aspects are of each state. So can you just talk about that and, and what we need to have in place so we can do this legally? Yeah, I think starting with this this concept in this talk is is the perfect lead into the information. So telehealth, telemedicine um, are kind of interchangeable terms. Telemedicine is really about the clinical practice of doing like the diagnosis, evaluations, and assessments. So that's the term I'll use most often okay. uh, during the podcast, but you may hear me use telehealth, uh, which is just an overarching theme over everything that's done through uh, remote kind of interactions. Um, but when you're doing telemedicine, the biggest thing you gotta start with is one, you having liability insurance as the practitioner and making sure that uh, either your liability or malpractice insurance covers telemedicine visits. So yep. start there, look at that. And if not, um, make sure that you get a writer for that additional services that you may be performing. Um, then move in into your state practice act. So um, I've reviewed probably about 30 out of 50, um, state 51 state practice acts for um, for athletic training, and most don't mention the word telemedicine, telehealth, technology, um, or anything relative to that. So most of the time they're not listed in there. And now it's when they specifically list that it's not part of the services that we gotta be mindful of. So right now, most of our, our states don't state anything about it. Physical therapy, occupational therapy, they're starting to add that in. And I would encourage anybody listening to this, this podcast uh, to really think about adding those things into your state practice acts if you're on some governmental affairs committees, things like that. So uh, we can start working towards and being on the same page as PT and OT moving forward. So uh, kind of explore your state practice act. Most likely there's probably not going to be much in there though. Um, and then the next part is to make sure your physician's on board. So either uh, have extending orders that state that you're allowed to do telemedicine, um, or if not the whole staff is comfortable doing it, consider a privileging document. So a clinical privileging document states that the, the collaborating physician has seen you do a telemedicine visit, they're comfortable with your process of doing it, and they've signed off or allow you out of your staff rather than having a standing order that all the clinicians at this clinical site uh, can do it. So if only one or two people want to do it, I would suggest that route rather than a standing orders. Um, and then that way you basically have a sign off that this person, my, my physician is comfortable with me doing it. And they're, they're, um, included in that kind of decision-making process. Um, so I think those are some of the main starting concepts or places to really look at for that. Yeah. I just Next is episode 15, where Adam and I talk with Dr. Collins and Dr. Contos about concussion research and their treatment philosophies. So some of our viewers may or may not have uh, known Dr. Uh, Collins and Dr. Contos. They work at the UPMC Sports Medicine Concussion Program here in Pittsburgh. Um, they are the first and largest research and clinical uh, program focused on the diagnosis, evaluation, management of concussion-related mild traumatic brain injury. Uh, gentlemen, uh, why don't you talk to us a little bit about what concussions are? We'll just kind of start the show off there. Well... As athletic trainers, all of you should be familiar with the pathophysiology of this injury. And 
the word concussus literally translates from Latin to, to English to mean to shake violently. Brain moves in the skull. The membrane to the neuron will stretch. Potassium leaks in, which increases the demand for glucose or energy. But calcium leaks in the cell, which results in the vasoconstriction and less cerebral blood flow. All concussion is is a is a metabolic crisis. It's it's an energy problem to the cells and neurons. There's no blood. There's no swelling. MRI is normal. CT is normal. But there's an energy issue. And what we've learned now is there's actually different types of concussions that can occur from that energy issue. And that's really what we're specializing in here as a program is is identifying these different types of concussions and then targeting our treatments to the different types of concussions rather than this homogenous sort of one size fits all approach. We're not big into concussion protocol here because it's not about protocol. It's about process in terms of how we treat this injury. Yeah. You, you know, if you've seen one concussion, you, you've seen one concussion, so to speak. And, and that's where that multi-domain assessment piece that, that Dr. Collins just mentioned, you know, you want to look at what's going on cognitively. You want to look at anxiety mood. You want to look at the vestibular and ocular systems. And so we've developed tools that, that allow us to look at each of those systems and then tailor really the approach, the targeted active approach. And that, that active piece is an important part. We don't, we don't want to wait to be active with, with these athletes and individuals with concussion. We want to get them on a targeted active strategy right away. That, that really is designed to minimize symptoms and impairment and accelerate recovery. And, you know, to break that down a little bit, we've really learned that there's six different types of concussions, cognitive, vestibular, ocular, migraine, cervicogenic or neck, and anxiety and mood. And for each, think of those as six interlocking circles. And for each of those circles, there's different risk factors, there's different symptoms, there's different exam findings in the VOMs, there's different neurocognitive profiles on impact, there's different presentations that we see. And in order for us to treat the patient, we need to know where the aberrant signal's coming from. And if you can figure out what type of concussion you have, or concussions, because it, those aren't mutually exclusive, you can have two or three of those circles. But once you identify the type of concussion that's going on, we then apply a very targeted treatment. And that's much different than the international consensus guidelines that have this one size fits all approach about, you know, if you had a concussion, rest the beginning, start exertion. If you have symptoms, back off that exertion. That's not how we operate here at UPMC. Um, we're much more targeted and much more really active in how we treat this. And right now, um, the big things coming out of our program is us proving that through our randomized controlled trials, that this approach works better than that approach. And, and you're gonna see over the next several years, even months even, that our outcomes are gonna improve by being more targeted in how we approach this injury. So now do the, the different types of concussions um, that you guys are identifying, does the mechanism of injury, like where the head um, is impacted, uh, whether it's a rotational or linear force, does that play to effect with any, um, any of your findings? It's a great question. And the answer is not really, no. Okay. Um, now, anecdotally, I can tell you that hitting the back of your head is not real good for you. And we see a lot of those patients here. And there's a lot of things that can be affected by that. But no, I would not say there's any, don't think about this as a, as a, as a, like this part of your brain is injured. 
type of injury because that's not the way it works. It's more of this metabolic crisis and different systems become decompensated from that. Okay. Uh, Anthony, you want to comment on it? Yeah, and how, and how it's connected. You know, it's, it's not like you're, you're saying just a, a section is injured, as, as Mickey just said. It, it, it's an interconnectedness with the injury and you're seeing pathways disrupted and that's going to affect processes. And, you know, some of these processes kind of share similar pathways in the brain. A good example is the vestibular and anxiety piece. Uh, and we've actually published papers that show that those two uh, sets or domains of symptoms occur oftentimes at the same time in the same patient. And so we see some of that shared sort of pathway in the brain being damaged. Many of you, you may not realize that car sickness is one of the biggest risk factors that we've learned about here being a risk factor for a longer, not only to get a concussion, but to have a longer outcome from it. Okay. And that is the vestibular system and people with a history of car sickness are more likely to have anxiety. There's real biology between these systems. And if you think about this critically, if you have a vestibular type of, it's gonna trigger anxiety. And then when the patient starts moving, it triggers the vestibular deficits, which then triggers the anxiety. And then patients will try to condition themselves not to move in certain ways because of it. And the way you treat a vestibular problem is by retraining it, it's not rest. And so that whole international consensus, like back off exertion and back off if there's symptoms does not work for patients with that type of concussion because you have to retrain that system to get it better. And so there's a lot of clinicians out there that aren't in a targeted way approaching this injury. And that's why the outcomes are worse, if that makes sense to you. And it, you can think of it like exercise. It's an exposed recover model. Um, you know, when you first start exercising, there's a little discomfort, some mild symptoms, but that actually shows that you're taxing that system a little bit. And, you know, the key in the clinical challenge is to balance how much of that is okay and how much isn't. And, and that's what we're working on now with our research. And also, it's very important that these patients are seen by a specialist that knows how to do this, because if you push too hard, there can be significant consequences and outcome as well. There's... So think of that vestibular circle. There's probably 15 different permutations of that within that circle. And some patients have problems with more horizontal movement. Some patients with more vertical movements. Patients, some patients have what's called visual motion sensitivity, which is more like busy environments bothering them. For each of those different types of vestibular problems, there's different types of movements. And there's also the risk of triggering migraine in those patients or severe anxiety in those patients. And so it's, it, it's really important to be seen by a clinician that knows how to measure this, look at it, and then how to rehab it. The next clip is from episode 16, our National Athletic Training Month episode. This clip specifically is Janelle Nolt talking about what it means to be an athletic trainer. Do you feel that during this whole process, meeting with the other uh, departments on campus, that they figured out what athletic training was? <laughs> were they were they kind of had a preset mind beforehand and you changed it? I've, I'm interested to see how these meetings like progress throughout the year. Yeah, absolutely. I think a, a lot of people didn't know what we did. Um, I think a lot of people still really had that idea of you know, their athletics and they're on that other side of campus and, you know, athletic trainers probably are just, you know, working in the gym or, you know, they're just, you know, like our coaches and they work with our teams and they really didn't understand that we are qualified healthcare professionals. And, 
Um, I think just in the knowledge that I came to the table with, especially around um, testing and contact tracing, um, really just, I think, proved that we are competent um, healthcare professionals. And, you know, I'm in meetings with nurse practitioners um, and we're, ta- we're all talking the same language. And, and I think that um, that has gone a long way in educating people um, that, you know, athletic trainers, what they are is, I think, definitely has given people a different frame of mind when they think of what athletic trainers are and do. Um, we were involved in our, our testing protocol. All the athletic trainers at Dickinson helped with the return to um, return to campus protocols and involved in our testing protocols. And, and um, just, again, being labeled as healthcare professionals is, is a key part of that educational process. How do you think that your athletic training background um, kind of gave you a leg up on working with the pandemic uh, mm-hmm. situation? Yeah, I think, um, you know, obviously our our broad base of knowledge is, is key in how we approach um, emerging um, topics in medicine, right? Like we're always staying up to date on the new trends in medicine. And I think COVID is just another one of those, um, those areas. So um, always staying on the cutting edge, always trying to learn the, um, the latest update. I think that was um, just really important as we were going through the phases of COVID is just always trying to stay um, on top of, of the latest update. I think also athletic trainers are just very used to being adaptable, right? Like, okay, well, this is not what we do anymore. We do it this way. And we know how to do that. Like we used to be doing it this way. It's not the way you're supposed to do it anymore. Now we do it this way. So I think just being adaptable and knowing that we've done that all all along and being able to make that switch pretty easily, um, I think helps us. Um, I think also just being used to working in an environment that's fast paced and working with people and being able to communicate well and um, yeah, just be okay with being in a, in a, an environment that's a little chaotic and a little face pa- um, fast paced. I know when the athletic trainers were helping with like the testing site um, and setting up the testing site, I think there was like, it's basically arranging physicals, right? Yep. Like all athletic trainers have know how to run physicals and know how to run stations and make physicals run smoothly for a lot of people in a short amount of time. And I think for some other professionals who just are used to seeing people in just very small, like like small groups in a longer period of time, it just was like this complicated math problem. And we're like, it, it's physical. So you just, you set up stations and you run people through. Um, and so I, I do think athletic trainers just have this unique skill set that, um, that just know how to problem solve and know how to approach a, a, um, a complicated dilemma that, um, that they can solve quickly. Episode 17 provided all you ever wanted to know about our state legislature and the PA Practice Act. 
It's a great review. Check it out. I, I mean, I know I, when I was um, when I originally got my license in Pennsylvania after college, um, we were told we could just apply to any of them. And I haven't seen any, obviously, no difference in the laws. Does that kind of affect how easy it is to change our State Practice Act to add uh, more abilities to get licensure since we have to go through both boards? No, nope, because again, when we went, we did the licensure um, in 2011, when we were able to pass that, we had companion bills that were um, put forward and those companion bills just go together. And so okay. they, they, they mirror the language in each, in each of them so that they still remain the same. Um, awesome. Now the boards then, if, if there is a disciplinary action, the boards may not adjudicate it the same because they are individual boards, but they have the, we have the ability to do what we're doing under those boards. Okay. That makes sense. Yeah. Uh, what are some specifics that uh, we should, that we need to understand to practice legally in Pennsylvania? Um, so the specific, so one, I, I, I have to say is that I think everybody that's an athletic trainer working in Pennsylvania should at least read through the practice act and the rules and regs. Um, I don't believe that, I don't know how much that happens. I hope that it happens a lot more than I think it happens, but um, you really should know what you're allowed to do in, in Pennsylvania because the rule, the, the practice act and the rules and regulations have these definitions in them. And so one of the big ones is physically active person. So that's a definition of a patient population that we have in Pennsylvania. We're the only healthcare profession that is regulated by a population. Um, so it, you need to know what that term is, what the definition is, you know, for whatever practice that you're in, whether you are in a, a traditional versus a non-traditional setting. Um, understanding what a written protocol is. What's the definition of a written protocol? What's a standing written prescription? What does that look like? What does a referral look like? And how is that supposed to, to do? The rules and regulations talks about communication that you have to have with your supervising physician. So it lays out what you're supposed to do. It has to be in writing. You have to be able to have that written in there. Um, how you're communicating. And then the two big ones, athletic training services is defined what you can do and more importantly what you can't do at, under athletic training services and then practice standards are also within those rules and regulations like those are those are big for me and like i said before the temporary license is something that i think that is not taken advantage of from recent graduates a lot of our graduates take the boc exam before they actually end up graduating but not everybody one passes i mean i think we have a good passing rate, but you don't not you find people that don't, they don't always pass one, or they get pushed back into that summertime position. And they don't realize that if as long as you're a graduate, have everything, all your ducks in a row, and you have applied to sit for the exam, you can actually apply for a temporary license in the state. And what that temporary license will do is you can practice as an athletic trainer in the state of Pennsylvania, as long as you're under direct supervision of an athletic trainer for up to a year. So you could work as an athletic trainer for up to a year as you're taking your exam. Yep. And as soon as you take your exam, you have everything already with the state. It just reverts to a license. So what are the requirements to apply for that? Do you have to have proof of You have um, to have everything. Graduate? Yeah, everything okay. in a row that you would have to have for licensure besides the BOC exam. Okay. You have to prove that you have applied to take the exam. See, I never knew that existed. Like when you were saying temporary license, I was thinking something on the lines of like travel treat where you're coming in for a few days. That um, is in our law as well. 
but that's not considered a temporary. Not temporary it yeah. is just the under practice standards. It just allows that if you're tra if someone is traveling into Pennsylvania, and not all states have this, um, but the um, the law the the national law that was passed does help with this. But uh, in Pennsylvania, if you're traveling into the state and you're working with your own group of people, you're not ad adding new patients. You are allowed to work with your own people on that temporary basis while you're in the state. In episode 18, Matt Shade walks us through planning for our financial success. Athletic trainers kind of know getting into the profession that we're not going to make a ton of money, right? That That's not why most of us get into the profession. We, we, we love what we do. We love our athletes um, and, and we love to, to provide that care that we do. That, you know, isn't the only reason though. We, we still need to make a living and we still need to, to set ourselves up for the future. Um, what could you tell us or tell our listeners? Um, what, what are some key areas that we can really focus on? Um, and, and maybe talk about what, what to focus on early in our career versus, you know, maybe mid forties, fifties, and then maybe later on, um, what are, what are some real key areas that we need to know about or, or need to, um, you know, think about as we uh, we're, we're trying to set ourselves up for, for the future? Sure. Uh, so, if you look at your financial world, it starts with organization, just knowing where everything is together. Going back uh, earlier, you know, when you say, oh, you know, you're a financial planner, it's stocks or it's insurance. You know, a, a quick exercise I would like to run with people is I'm just going to kind of start to rapid fire at you guys some topics and think about it. It's like, do I have that going on in my life? And it starts with car insurance, homeowners insurance renter's insurance, uh, long-term disability insurance, short-term disability insurance, health insurance, wills, trusts, powers of attorney, life insurance. How about property? Do you have jewelry, sports collectibles, things of significant value, savings, checking, money markets, CDs, maybe an Acorns or Robinhood account for investments, a 401k, 403b, I-29 plan, college savings for your kids. How about a mortgage, credit card debt, student loan debt, how do you manage all that? How do you see it on one picture and how is it effective? And that all then comes back to the most important thing. Our largest asset that we have is our ability to generate income for ourselves. And that's where it starts. And so as a, the first step is just being financially organized, being able to see everything, are your dollars being effective and efficient in all the different areas? It, is it going to be effective and efficient in the short term, midterm, long term? When are you going to need access to that cash? And the next step is really thinking about your goals and your concerns. All of us are at different life stages. We all have different goals and concerns ahead of us. And where I find this is, I, I fell in this trap early in my career is I was just trying to self-teach, you know, listen to, to different types of podcasts or read books. But a lot of the information out there, it's good information, but it's not a one size fits all approach. Right. You know, you can't, it's not a blanket philosophy or strategy. You really have to customize it to yourself. And the only way you can do that is by being organized and getting everything laid out in front of you to start with. Um, from there, once you're organized, um, the team at IPG Philly, what we really focus on is, is a four step approach. So. We look at protecting our todays, making sure any of the big what ifs happen, we're still able to feed that income bucket for ourselves. From there, we look at saving strategies, controlling what we can control. A lot of people 
naturally think, okay, I have my 401k plan or, you know, retirement plan through work, I'm set. But we can't always control the stock market. We can't control when we have access to that money if and when we need it. So we build in a saving strategies. Then we look at your life event plans. What, what's going to happen in six months? What's, what's your goal in three years, 20 years, 40 years? And then from there, if you have debt, we focus on how can we approach and tackle some of that debt for you. Episode 19 is all about mental health with Lindsay Keenan. Oh. What do you think are, or in your opinion, what are some of the most important things that athletic trainers should implement to address, um, to address some mental health issues that we see commonly in the athletic training room for athletes yeah. and, or for yeah. our patients? Yeah. yeah, for our patients. That's a great question. I mean, the first thing is, is touching on what you both just said, like turning into yourself and saying, how comfortable am I talking about this? Right? Because this topic is stigmatized. Um, it's taken me a long time to get to this point that I can comfortably talk about my mental health. And I talk about it openly. I've talked about it in, fr in rooms in front of 100 people and all the way down to, you know, one of my patients right in front of me. I'm comfortable sharing, but that's probably not the norm. It's a private thing, right? It's also an invisible injury. And so you can hide it. Many people are hiding it. Uh, and Phil, you mentioned, like, you know, most of us will go through this. Um, SAMHSA, the... Um, uh, an organization that looks into mental health and, and uh, substance abuse in the U.S., their most recent publication just came out from their study in 2019, and they found that 50% of U.S. adults at some point in their lifetime will be diagnosed or experience a mental health issue. And so yeah. this is how common it is, one in two, half of us, right? And so, you know, we... The, the stigma behind talking about mental health is a difficult thing, but we can move past that if all of us together start talking about it more. Yeah. And that is already happening, right? So the NCAA and the NATA have published papers and consensus statements saying, yes, we need to address this. I think it took a little too long to, to get to this point, but at least we're here, right? Um, the, the NCAA uh, best practices document wasn't even published till 2016 on addressing mental health in athletes. But now we're here, so let's talk about it. So as an athletic trainer, you know, think about, you know, what are my discomforts? What am I comfortable with? Um, it doesn't mean that you have to disclose everything about yourself, but even stepping out like you just did, Phil, and saying, yeah, I've been in counseling before, 100% normalizes it. Yeah. Because counseling is just like treating your ankle, right? And so if we can normalize that conversation and get more comfortable talking about it, you will help your patients because they're going to hear you say these things and say, huh, okay, so let me talk to her about something when I'm not, you know, feeling right, or she's the person that I can go and tell. And I've had that happen with my athletes who, you know, it's their fourth year, their senior year of college, and I've been screening them every two weeks, every athletic season for depression, anxiety, eating disorders. And it's not till their senior year that they come to me and say, or, you know, flag on their checklist and report all these symptoms and say, yeah, I've been feeling like this for four years. Yeah. But I finally got to the point that I'm ready to tell someone and you're the person I'm going to tell. And so that's um, not a rarity. Like this you know, every team that you work with, if you work in, in uh, the secondary school collegiate setting, there's going to be somebody on that team experiencing depression or anxiety. It's, it's inevitable. And so are you creating an environment that opens the door to conversations? Now, with that being said, 
we also want to understand that we're not mental health providers, right? We're not licensed mental health providers. And so we can have a conversation, we can provide a listening ear, um, and then we offer a referral, right? We tell our athletes, I hear you and it really sounds like you're struggling. Let me help by connecting you with the right person because I can listen, but I'm not going to be able to help you through this. And only a licensed mental health provider is going to be able to help you through this. So having that conversation, knowing, you know, when to bring that up and really the answer there, because I always, athletic trainers often ask me like, when do I know? Should I offer a referral or not? Offer a referral all the time. Literally, even if they're just having a bad day, you know, it's just a bad day. You have some coping skills, but also there's the counseling center is, is always there on campus or the school counselor, the school psychologist, or, you know, we could call your health insurance and get you set up with someone, even if it's just for a couple of weeks. Like, you don't have to wait until things are so bad. And that's often what our patients do. Yeah. In episode 20, watch Adam Geek Out with John O'Neill about strength and conditioning. Yeah, I, I would love, um, you know, talk about Cressy Sports Performance. You know, what what is your specialty? Talk to me what the director performance looks like and, you know, what a typical day looks like, what kind of athletes are coming through, what your your training philosophies are. Um, feel free to, to kind of touch on anything. Yeah, absolutely. So um, I'll, I'll try to cover all those questions. I think there are probably a couple within that. Um, yep. So I know, I know most of this podcast, athletic trainers, um, there's definitely some overlap, you know, in fields. It's kind of like a picture of Venn diagram between PT and ATC and athletic training. Um, you know, there are things in your skill sets that are not in mine. There are things in mine that um, technically could be in yours, but I might have more experience with. Um, so uh, there's there's definitely the different segments. Um, we uh, are pretty much uh, all on the strength and conditioning side. Um, we have PTs in-house. We have manual therapists in-house. Uh, but a majority of my day is spent actually coaching. And so... Um, I'm looking at somewhere between 30 and 35 hours a week of coaching, um, working with athletes anywhere from age of 12 up to, um, I say athletes, but we have some gen pop people as well. Like we have a guy who's 73, 74 who comes in pretty regularly. Um, and so we have a, a pretty good group of adults, uh, but 80% of our population is baseball players between the age of like 16 and 24, um, guys all the way from, you know, freshmen, freshmen, sophomores in high school, um, through, you know, a couple guys in the major leagues. Our Florida facility, um, if you look at our Instagram, is known for their work with major league players, minor league players. Um, we are in, you know, somewhat rural Massachusetts. And so while we do have, um, you know, a pretty good stock of professional players that come through during the offseason, it's 13 or 14 that come in regularly. Um, you know, the Florida facility is much more known for that. Um, within your other questions, uh, my actual role uh, we have two owners. Um, so Eric Cressy, you guys may have heard of, and then Pete Dupuy, who runs the business end. Eric spends most of his year in Florida. Um, he spends the, basically the summers up here. Um, he also has commitments with the Yankees. And so uh, my job is basically to oversee what happens in the training floor. And so uh, we have a full team of strength and conditioning coaches. We have four of them. Um, we have a full internship program, which is anywhere from like five to eight interns at a time. Um, and so that's basically our, our coaching staff. Um, it's my job to oversee um, not only you know what their jobs look like, but also programming philosophies and continuing education and and organization of schedules and, um, you know, everything that kind of goes within that, um, kind of like, a, almost like a general manager role for a team. And so, um, you know, I can do parts of all of the jobs and my job is more to oversee all of it. Um, I still program for, I probably write somewhere between 60 and 85 programs a month. Um, our model is based on individualization. And so 
Um, that doesn't mean everybody's on like completely different programs. That means that we have the opportunity to individualize. And so um, versus like some, some college or more group settings where everyone is on the exact same program, um, our model when we take people in starts with an individual assessment. Uh, we're looking at everything from basic health history to um, question and answer intake, you know, trying to get the athlete's training background, what they do well, what they need to work on, what their goals are. Um, in addition to a series of more biomechanics-based testing, so you know stuff like range of motion, um, stuff that's more active control-based, like a toe touch and a squat. Um, you know, some of it, if you guys are familiar, is rooted in SFMA principles. It's rooted in PRI principles. It's rooted in you know some FRC principles. There's all kinds of schools of thought that um, my boss Eric and our staff over the years um, has has kind of blended into our own eval that takes somewhere between 20 and 30 minutes, and so. Every single athlete is going to go through that process when they come in. From there, they're going to go through, um, you know, kind of a, a baseline training session to start, and then we'll write the program after that day one. Um, our programs all work in four-week blocks, um, and we'll have athletes complete anywhere from, you know, if we have someone for the summer, they might get three programs in summer. If we have someone all off-season, fall, winter, we might have an athlete for six to eight months. And so, um, but every every progression, every program is based off how the athlete is. Uh, progressing how they're doing uh, based off the goals that we set based off the goals that they set um, and you know and their schedule of you know other activities um, but that model really allows us to I think see a lot um, cleaner or more efficient progressions um, than a group model and it doesn't mean if you're in a group model you can't do something similar um, but it allows us to really meet the athlete where they're at and so people don't really fall behind or people don't really uh, exceed their program they're all kind of like performing where they should be um, with their program. So I know that was a long-winded answer, but um, I think I think I touched on the, uh, the questions you had there. And finally, Becca Stearns talks to us about the importance of having an emergency action plan in place and the Tufts program for the Corey Stringer Institute. Check it out. Um, I, I'd like to go back up to the the N the NCCSIR. I think I got mm -hmm. all the all the letters mm -hmm. in there. Um, could you just maybe talk a little bit about what type of data you're collecting there? Um, you know, you talked about like if there was a, a exertional heat illness um, or death that you guys were kind of looking at it, but like what are you actually looking at and what are you trying to get from that that data? Yeah, so I love that you asked this question because we get to talk more about this data set, which I love. Um, <laughs> and so, uh, so yeah, so. Essentially, um, if you go to sportinjuryreport.org, it's a website that allows anyone to report a catastrophic injury. And again, this, this database is really housing injuries anywhere from the youth level all the way up to the professional level athletes. And so it's really important not only to capture um, the tragic deaths and, and fatal injuries that are out there, but also the survivals. Um, because in order to understand and fully um, capture what is being successful for the survivals and also what is leading to deaths of athletes we need to capture both of those realms and so right. anyone can anyone can report an injury and so we always encourage either the athlete themselves the family whoever's closest to that individual to report it um, and then we also go through media reports a lot of those items hit the media a lot so so we'll go through media reports and capture those and we collect as much information as we can so we will we will reach out and try to get surveys and, and information from the individuals closest to the incident. And then um, again, we, we compile this information, put it into the huge database, analyze it, and then and then look at it. And you know, there's been a ton of really impactful policy changes that we've seen. Um, I think the 
one of the largest and initial ones we've seen is just the head injury and neck cervical spine changes. Um, and we've seen a lot of rule changes that happened through the 70s um, for tackling. And that was in large because of the cervical spine and head injuries we were seeing, right? And then because of those rule changes, we've seen a dramatic decrease. So we've seen the impact of policy change on the, the injuries that are being reported to that database. Great. So, so basically anybody can report it or you guys are actively looking for them. And then you're just basically like little CSI folks and, and gathering all the information and then just trying to, to come up with, with better policy. Right. And I love, the, I love that you said that. Yeah. Like, right. Okay. If we have somebody who did end in death versus somebody who didn't, well, what were the differences? You know, right. And being able to identify that to, to lead to those policy changes um, seems, seems like a no brainer, but you know, whenever, I would originally thought of that. I wouldn't have thought of looking at both, right? So I, I think that's that's very good. Yeah, exactly. You hit it right on the nose. And it's all dependent on on the data that we get. So the more data that we have, the more incidents, the stronger and the better we're going to be. Yeah. Well, this has been an awesome year so far. We've had some really great guests and some awesome content. And I'd like to thank everybody who's been a part of this show for taking the time out of their busy schedule to help us put on an awesome production. A huge thank you to Sway Sports for sponsoring this episode. And to our viewers, a huge thank you for coming by. Remember to like, subscribe, and share these episodes. Leave a comment in the section below and let us know what you think of this episode and what you would like to see in future episodes. Until next time, for Adam Richman and myself, this was the Pat's Podcast.